0: East.co. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, awareness, and action is brought to you by Northern Trust Front Office Solutions. Northern Trust's platform empowers asset owners with better operations and tech support to allow investment teams and CIOs to meet their middle and front office needs. Their blend of technology and service has resonated and generated a lot of interest from listeners of the show. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is deeply ingrained in the culture at Northern Trust, and a special thanks to them for sponsoring this important miniseries. Shortly after I finished the interviews for the Sustainable Investing mini-series, Black Lives Matter took center stage in the United States. I asked around and discovered that the subject is uncomfortable for many to discuss, and that while many CIOs are interested in being part of the solution, most are not familiar with the underlying nature of the problem or the actions to take as a result. This mini series, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Awareness and Action, is a four part introduction to the issues at hand. We'll explore what's been going on for a long time and hear what some are doing about it. It's my small part in contributing to fostering the conversation. My guest on the third episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Awareness and Action is Shundron Thomas. The president of Northern Trust Asset Management, where he oversees the $900 billion organization. Shundran joined Northern Trust Corporation in 2004 and rose to the leadership team in 2008. Over the last eight years, he has hired and promoted much of Northern Trust Asset Management's executive team, whose 15 members include nine women and minorities. Shundran is deeply involved in diversity efforts across the industry and was named one of this year's most influential black executives in corporate America and previously one of the most powerful blacks on Wall Street. Our conversation covers Shundran's early career and issues of race, the culture that drew him into Northern Trust, and examples of unconscious bias. We turn to his values based methodology to foster change across recruiting mentorship, promotion, leadership, and performance at Northern Trust, and we close with his perception of how the renewed interest in diversity provides an opportunity for businesses to take action. Please enjoy my conversation with Shundran Thomas in the third episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action. Shundran, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Ted, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Thanks always love to start with someone's background. So how did you initially get into the asset management industry?
1: The way that I got into investment management was really along the continuum of a career in financial services. So I was born and raised in Chicago, grew up on the south side. I had a great educational experience in starting in high school, going to a magnet program. And the reason I start there is because that was the first place I really got introduced to practical exposure to business. I had known since I was young, I wanted to go into business, but I really didn't know what that meant, right? I saw people wearing suits on TV, carrying briefcases. I thought that was cool. And I thought they were doing things that were important. But at that time, I took an accounting course. I took an applied economics course. I really began to understand how it applied in real life. I had worked all the way through high school, but I did a co-op working for what was then Anderson Consulting. The author Anderson, as we know it, does not exist today. And that kind of set me on a path where I did an undergraduate uh, major in business. And then while I was in my undergraduate, pursuing my undergraduate degree at Florida A&M University, that's where I did some internships, the last one actually being working for Morgan Stanley. Because over time, I moved from having an interest in accounting, believing that I would be an auditor, to really getting exposed to the capital markets and investing in those things. And so you fast forward to today, you know, 26-year career, principally working in various areas of financial services. Primarily, I've spent my career in the capital markets and then on the investment side of the business, and that's my role today.
0: At what point in time did you transition from being effectively a producer to a manager and leader of people?
1: I was fortunate to have a managerial experience fairly early on in my career. So When I came out and I worked for Morgan Stanley, was an analyst there, had an opportunity to move and be promoted into associate role, I knew I wanted to go to business school, so I went to, the, to business school at the University of Chicago. And When I came out, I went to work for Goldman Sachs, and there I was working in the equities division, working in an in institutional sales capacity, and my role was actually advising institutional investors. So whether you think large public pension funds, you think large asset managers, alternative managers like hedge fund managers, those would have been my clients. And a couple years into that, as our business was growing, I had the opportunity to then move from where I was part of a team to co-managing one of our territories. And so, again, it's fairly early on having an opportunity to be, at that time, a player coach. And that's different, right? Because you go beyond just what you have to do in a very demanding performance-oriented business from thinking about what you have to do specifically in your capacity to thinking about how a team works together, how you encourage the development of people working with you and around you, those sorts of things. So that was my first opportunity to have managerial responsibility.
0: How did you learn to do that?
1: Maybe it's one of the dirty secrets about like most professional services firms is that more than not, you actually don't prior to going into some sort of management capacity get formal management training now i will tell you i did actually go through management training when i was at goldman sachs but it was like after getting the manager role but what i would say is i have certainly been the beneficiary throughout my career of wonderful mentors and it started with my parents i mean i have wonderful parents we have a great relationship and they were always my foremost coaches and teachers and one of the things that you realize is like now my parents They have no expertise whatsoever in the world of finance they pursue different things vocationally and a lot of what they do in terms of development of people came through their service and ministry because they're senior pastors of a church so they were bivocational in that sense but a lot of what they did and everything that they did was about the development of people and so understanding how you engage with people starting with your own self-development how you work in teams and then if you're fortunate enough like i had over the course of my career to have really strong mentors and sponsors, I think that shapes a lot of how you approach management.
0: So, before we get to sort of Northern Trust, where you spent a lot of time along the way as a young African American professional working your way up those ranks, what were some of the challenges that you saw and faced specific to the racial differences?
1: Well, there are a couple of things that you deal with as it pertains to race. And the first thing that you deal with is, one, in societies around the world, and I would say it's particularly acute in the U.S., race is a topic that just influences like every aspect of life. And what's interesting is so many people probably underappreciate even the inception of concepts around race and all those things, but it's a social construct that we all accept and buy into because that's what we know. If you're an African American, if you're a person... From a racial standpoint, that's characterized as black, there are so many things that you deal with in a sense, in a direct sense, but a lot of them are subtle, particularly in the workplace, because there are stereotypes or perceptions or things like that that precede you. And one of the things is your reality is you have to navigate a culture, and that has its own challenges for anyone. You have the instance of race and what that means in terms of everything from biases to stereotypes to preconceptions. But then you have this other element, which is race is a very uncomfortable topic. It's one of those proverbial third rails. So it's not something that's in a sense engaged on directly or talked about in polite company. So it's having to navigate something that presents its requisite challenges at the same token at a time or in most normal settings where it's something that people feel quite uncomfortable engaging on.
0: When you got to Northern Trust, you had had some management experience, and you certainly worked your way up. What was the culture like either then or today as you're running asset management?
1: First of all, I would say if you think about an organization that's been around for over 130 years, there's something to be said about longevity, and probably one of the things that is entailed in that is some strong, in a sense, cultural bearings or norms, all cultures have two forms of capital, performance capital and relational capital. But Northern Trust as an organization is a highly relational culture. To Northern Trust, we talk about the business that the firm was founded on, if you think about it being a trust bank and beginning with sort of the management of people's wealth, but the fiduciary heritage and responsibility. And that fiduciary heritage, it permeates the entire culture. So in terms of of that one, I think that at Northern Trust, I would say it's a conservative culture. Now, you know, conservative often means something in this day and age, so I'm not talking about from a political standpoint. I'm talking about there's a purposefulness and a decisiveness and a long-term orientation and a way in which decisions are made over time, so it's not a harried kind of culture in those sorts of things. And then I would say as a culture, if this makes sense, all cultures have norms or behaviors, But some cultures are really strong cultures and some cultures are weaker cultures, but cultures nonetheless. Northern Trust is definitely a strong culture. And so those are some of the things that I encountered when I joined Northern Trust and are consistent to this day. The last thing that pervades the culture is like while you don't want to be stereotypical about a culture, it really does have this Midwestern ethos in terms of how you would think about it and the things that that would entail.
0: How do you define what some of those behavioral norms are for the company?
1: So one of the behavioral norms of our culture is definitely the enterprise or in the team precedes the focus on the individual actor. And so you'll hear some people talk about, quote unquote, a star-based culture. where well, we'd be the antithesis of that. Another thing is there is a strong emphasis in terms of being collaborative And a lot of the decision-making is consensus-driven. That would be another element of the culture. People, because of that sort of Midwest ethic, I think that there is both a genuine concern and care about the welfare of your colleagues, but I also think that brings with it a certain level of, and people from the Midwest can definitely appreciate this, a certain level of politeness. And the point I would make here, it's a very important point, Ted. A lot of times when you talk about cultures and you talk about the qualities of cultures. Now, I'm biased. I've been there 16 plus years. So obviously, I want to be there. I value the culture. But actually, when I make these observations, I don't make them as good or bad observations per se. I make them as observations about the qualities that distinguish this particular culture. Because every culture... It's like getting your performance review. There are things that you do well and are your strengths. And there there are always the opportunities that you have of the things that you're trying to evolve and improve. I would say as an individual, right, I have certain strengths. Some of those are just a function of how I'm created, like my design, so to speak. And I have certain things that people would perceive as weaknesses. And on some level, I guess your strengths belie your weaknesses. There's no such thing as having all strengths as people might use those terms. That's true of cultures as well.
0: And what do you see as some of your particular strengths and weaknesses?
1: Personally, like my orientation is in terms of my temperament. I'm definitely an intuitive and a thinker. So an NT, like if people did Myers-Briggs, you might refer to that temperament type as a rational. And so that means for me, I have a natural strategic orientation. Like when I th- think. I don't necessarily get to a point linearly. I can get there very quickly because I have an abstract way of deducing things and problem solving. Those are natural strengths for me. I'm also an abstract communicator in that regard. I would say in terms of my disposition, I'm very much an independent thinker. And so while as all of us, we have an open emotional loop, we care about how we get on and collaborate with others. If there is a continuum, Ted, I'm not overly conflict-averse. And so there's a certain kind of independent thinking stream, a tough-mindedness, and that's a function of how I'm built or wired. And that, along with that strategic thinking orientation, you know, those things have their strength. I would say that I have found, since early on in my life, I really thrive in being able to not only work with, but pull together, and over time, as my influence has gone, lead very diverse teams. And that's something I I think that's really important. And I also believe that with respect to both how I communicate and just my natural values and ability to connect on a genuine way with people of all kinds of experiences and backgrounds. So those would be strengths. In terms of the continual areas of improvement in life, like one of the things that I think that one can never be good enough at and I always work on is just listening. It seems like a really simple thing. I'd like to believe I've gotten better over time. But this thing that's really powerful, and I talk to people about the ability to listen both with our head intellectually and with our heart emotionally. And I feel like that's an area where over time, particularly as someone who has positional leadership responsibilities, I've improved. But it's a place that I'm constantly focusing on and you see the areas where you need to improve. Another area related is that, Your strengths belie your weaknesses. I am a very outcome-oriented person, very performance-driven in that regard. And there is a such thing that I would describe as understanding pace. And so my natural orientation, if this makes sense, Ted, is like if the car has five gears, like mine's stuck in fifth. And at my best, I learn when I need to adjust and to put it in the right gears, which for me means at times you actually have to downshift the way i would describe it is if you're racing on a racetrack sometimes when you're going into that curve you actually got to slow down a little bit so you can speed up to come out the other side and so i would say those are examples of as i've introspectively looked at myself and how i've engaged things i've focused on and you know areas of constantly sought to improve
0: you mentioned as one of the strengths this ability to lead diverse teams and i'm curious what you mean by diverse
1: So diverse to me occurs on a number of different levels. So first of all, I fundamentally believe that when we think about diversity of culture and ethnicity, that's very relevant. I know that people of good intent and goodwill will say things like, I'm colorblind. And I know what they mean by that. But the reality is we're not really colorblind. At our best, we actually, if we want to use the term color, we need to be color aware. Because appreciating people of different cultural backgrounds, ethnicities, if we want to use the construct of race, they bring different perspectives to a team, an environment, a group. And I think part of it is, maybe it's because of some of my lived experience, maybe it's just who I am as a person, but being sensitive to the fact that while we might have a common culture, that everybody's a unique person. And I think it's given me an ability to appreciate that and then appreciate how to engage people as their unique selves, to allow them the space and the grace, I like to say, to be themselves. What I like to describe as bring the best of who they are into the workplace. Now, I think one of the ways that you get that, tech, frankly, is I actually think you have to learn to do it first yourself. And so if people are really honest, a lot of times people struggle in any sort of workplace or corporate environment to just be authentic. Because there's one, such a pressure to conform to whatever the cultural norms are, and we have to buy in to be part of that culture. And then there's another thing to conform to whatever people believe they need to conform to to be successful, whatever that is. But sometimes in that process, the authentic self can get lost. And I think what happens when you have the commitment and sometimes the courage to find your authentic self, people respond in kind. And so I think those are some of the keys to connecting with people. But I also think diversity of thought is important. So again, we come at solving things different ways. And you know how sometimes you can be with a group of people and they will be inclined towards people who think the way they do or come at problems the same way that they do. And they will attest a high value to that. I'm actually quite the opposite. And so oftentimes when I'm working in a group, I'm literally listening for and scanning for people who use, in a sense, a different rubric or a different way of looking at the problem than I do. My bias is I know how I think about things. And I know, in a sense, what my tool set is. So what would complement or expand that? So I think diversity of thought is an important element of diversity as well. And then the last part of diversity, I would say, is diversity of style. And what I mean by that is there are multiple ways of getting things done. And I think one of the mistakes that you can make, say, as a manager, for example, is focusing so much on the process or with an individual, the style, that you miss focusing on the outcome and not giving people the space to say if they can effectively accomplish an outcome and it's not inconsistent with the cultural norms, why not give them that space or that flexibility?
0: So as you walk through some of your strengths and then tie this into your beliefs now and how you lead, there are a lot of synergies, right? The fact that you are an independent thinker, the fact that you're not as timid about conflict as other people that leads you to think differently in those group settings. I'm wondering, along the way in your path to being in the seat that you are today, if you ran into situations that very specifically, whether by race or thought, it doesn't really matter, that... You saw people not embracing diversity as you defined it broadly.
1: Oh, well, for sure. So I would say that, one, there are both times when people consciously and unconsciously reject diversity. Let me start on the second element, which is, many would argue, the most common, those unconscious rejections of it. The reality is, when you work in a setting there's a normative standard, whether it's acknowledged or not. So let me give you an example, right? When I joined and I worked for the first firm that I worked for, I'm working for a large Wall Street firm. I'm working in sales and trading, particularly in the fixed income division. And we had these really large trading floors, right? And so on one trading floor, we have multiple trading floors. I think on our the one trading floor that I worked on, uh, there were approximately 600 professionals, My rough recollection was there were no more than counting me, I believe, five African-Americans on the whole floor. And I think there were only, to my best recollection, maybe two people of Hispanic backgrounds or ethnicity. And so, I mean, think about that, right? So it's just not bad. We won't call it inherently bad, but it's just, it's not diverse, Right. And so the normative standard is different. And so if you think about everything from if you're stepping into that environment, say I was in an analyst role, and I would also have to do presentations to the broader group of my research findings. So little things in terms of the style, in terms of how you present. So maybe as maybe natural, more common to your ethnicity, if you on the margin were more expressive, you may get a lot of feedback about telling you how you need to change that. And is it because you're not effective in communicating, or is it because it's dissonant with the normative standard? And that's more of an innocuous example that I would give you. There are many others. There were times early on in my career where there would be, say, if you're on a trading floor, you keep the TVs on, you're watching financial markets. And I can tell you, I could chart my experience in life by different things that happen socially, like the OJ Simpson trial. And you'd have to imagine, like, the emotions that that brings out and what that's like for, say, a young person of color navigating that environment. Because there may be many people, obviously, who don't know you. And so if that creates or brings up certain views or perceptions based on stereotypes, it's hard for that not to be projected on you in certain ways. So it's all kind of ways that those intersect in very real and practical ways. And so what I found over time is early on in your career, it's just really challenging, right? Because you don't have enough experience or the tools of how to deal with that. Over time, at least for myself, what I found is an increasing willingness and a courage to engage in dialogue. And I realized that the only way you could begin to make progress on the relational side, if you started with the dialogue, that's not easy for many people. And I would say, I don't want to pretend to you at all, Ted, that that is in the past or even sometimes when I have to do that today, easy for me. I think to your point, I think there are two things. Some of it is just based on who I am as a person. And not only maybe I would say kind of how I'm made, but I would say what my beliefs and values are. So that drives part of why I do what I do. Because sometimes I I would talk to my dad about a lot of things growing up. He would say, son, you always tell the truth. He said it's the right thing to do and it's the easiest thing to remember. But what he would say also is truth is rewarding always in the long term. But Ted understand not necessarily in the short term. And that's one of the things you have to decide on your values if you're committed enough to the truth to tell your truth, even if you think maybe in the short term it won't benefit you or in the short term it might even
0: cost you. When you've now come into this leadership position that you've been in for a while, I'm curious how you take those experiences and inculcate them in an organization. And maybe the easiest way to walk through it is just to kind of go through some different functional areas and the things you've tried to do. So so we could start with the first step, which is recruiting, and how you've gone about thinking through these issues.
1: One of the things that with recruiting is interesting, and that's a, a perfect example where sometimes you have certain norms and practices that don't present the outcomes that you desire and so you really have to have both the awareness and then the commitment to making changes and so from a recruitment standpoint i'll start with if i can give you this step right before getting to doing anything like whether it's recruitment or training or anything like that here's what i think is important the first thing that I actually engaged in when I, for example, entered into my role as president of the asset management business at Northern Trust was something I have did along the way at every single step I've had in an increasing leadership role, which is engage with people in dialogue, get lots of feedback. And what I like to do is identify what I refer to as shared values. We all have values, whether we expressly articulate them or not. They're just our deeply held beliefs. We don't necessarily have the same values. But we can choose to, if we're part of a common culture, to agree on a set of values that we'll share or we commit to. And I'm going to tell you why that was very important to the question that you asked. So we did that as part of our exercise. And I've done that before as, as my responsibility has grown. And within the context of asset management, there were five that we agreed on. And it was a lot had to do with what people shared in terms of their perspectives and where we wanted to go. But those values were passion, competence, intellectual curiosity, diversity, and humility. Now, to your question, if I use recruiting as an example, so if we have those shared values, those values actually should inform the way we recruit. So it would make sense if then I looked at the recruiting processes and I said to our partners, hey, I've been taking a look at the processes. And while they're directionally fine, I noticed that we don't have a lot intentional in the process about how we think about bringing on people who share this value of passion. So let's look at the questions we ask, and let's see if we don't need to be more intentional about how we prepare to interview people. Competence. Now that we've articulated very explicitly, I've noticed that we're inconsistent on how we look for or we're test for that. And now let's get to diversity. Well, here's an interesting thing. I went through and I just looked over the results for the past year, and I noticed that not only do we have very little in the way of diversity in terms of what our goals are, in terms of hiring in certain areas, but I also noticed we're not even seeing very many diverse candidates. So why don't we put in place some practices to ensure that we increase the number of diverse candidates we see? So I did that.
0: And what were some of those practices?
1: So one of the things that we did is both in terms of gender diversity and ethnic diversity, we set explicit expectations in terms of minimum representation on our interview panels. We also set new processes in place for the HR teams or the recruiting teams that were working with us in terms of their expectations on delivering diverse pools of candidates to our managers and then our managers' commitments to working a lot of them. You know something else we did that we didn't do on the first pass? So first we looked at our, who we were interviewing. Then we said, we also have to look at who's doing the interviewing. And it occurred to me to do that, and I asked the HR folks to pull from me over a period of time, like who that we actually had on the interview slates for the candidates who were coming in. And in two particular instances I found, and there was no ill intent on this, but to give you an example, I found two instances where we had extraordinarily talented female candidates come in interviewing our firm, and we have a reasonable amount of gender diversity. Not one single person on their interview schedule was a woman. I mean, Ted, you could almost throw a rock in our building and like not get that, <laughs> that accident on purpose. You have to change the practices. And we would have needed to do that either way. But you understand how setting an established foundation of shared values gave the basis of which to inform why we did it. And so I think those things were important.
0: I want to push a little further on two aspects of that. The first is Probably less so of Northern Trust than a lot of organizations. But if we have an existing diversity issue within the hiring organization, and it therefore makes it that much harder at all different levels to have the woman in this case be part of that interviewing process if there aren't a proportionate number of women already in the organization, how do you think about solving for that issue?
1: You have to actually start from wherever you are. So here's, I think, something that we can comfortably say, Ted. I've spent roughly 26 years working in financial services. I am grateful for all of the firms I've worked for. And I think the reason I've been at Northern Trust for 16 years is accounting is because of what I think about the culture. And I can tell you for the industry and in every place I've worked, we've got meaningful work to do as it pertains to diversity. So there's no place that I've been a part of where I've been on a continuum and I said, gosh, we really nailed it. (laughs) And we can fold up our tent and go home. So if that's the case, because your question is a very fair one, but to your point, there might be some companies at mass, or there might be certain parts of an enterprise or a company that there's just very little diversity as a starting point. That doesn't mean that you can't change the dialogue around diversity, that you can't train the partners and especially the leaders that are there to have not only a greater appreciation for diversity, but train them in areas like unconscious bias. That doesn't mean that if you don't have a lot of existing, say gender diversity or ethnic diversity, that you still can't put into practice or policies that at least allow you to do things like to see more diverse candidates. Or it doesn't mean that you cannot, and in fact what it means is you should expose The leaders that you have, particularly if they're not very diverse, to organizations, networks where they can interact with more diverse people. You ask a really good question because what happens sometimes, Ted, is you know how you can do this with any issue. But I think it's sometimes particularly is the case with diversity. If people are starting from a low base or the situation looks difficult. It's sometimes easy to just throw up your hand and say, well, just forget it. We just don't have this stuff in place. We can't find the people and all those different things. I think you have to have an affirmative approach to starting where you are in a meaningful and consistent commitment.
0: The other question that I hear from time to time where there's sort of pushback on this diversity issue is in the, in the hiring decision. If you're able to broaden the funnel, you have more candidates. And at the end of the day, there's only one slot people say, oh, all else equal. Well, all else isn't equal. You have two different individuals, two different experiences. How do you go about thinking about, particularly in an organization that hasn't started with the diverse space of, is it appropriate? When is it appropriate to incrementally favor someone on the margin? This is all incremental and on the margin to foster that diversity.
1: The ironic thing is, if you ask people this question, do you believe you have any biases? What do you think most people would say? Probably say. Yes. So if you have biases, it's reasonable to believe that from time to time you act on those biases. So keep following this logic. So it means that of the many decisions we've made, including hiring decisions, those have been informed in part by our biases. And that's why we have the outcome that we have, right? So what you try to do is, I think, as it pertains to diversity, whether you're trying to improve gender or ethnic diversity, there is often a very adverse, and in some instances, negative reaction in cultures if you say, we're going to, in a heavy way, put a thumb on the scale, so forth and so on. Interestingly enough, the challenge there is the very inequity that's often been created is because of the biases, And so then people are fighting against any conscious effort to offset that. I think what you have to do is you start with creating the expansion of what I call opportunities. I found in the majority of cases, Ted, not all, in the majority of cases, when you truly create as a value a cultural norm around diversity and you increase the opportunities of it, people will adjust. Because what happens is we're all part of the culture. And so if people start to believe, you know what, diversity is really important here and I understand why and I buy into it, here's what will happen, Ted, without being forced in most instances, because remember I said we had that open emotional loop, you know what, what we'll do, you'll do it, Ted. You say, you know what, I'm close on these two people. I mean, let's be honest, I'm not a perfect judge. And because, is right, people will make the marginal decisions that achieve the outcome that you want. Now, here's what I will say. they are always the exceptions. And so if you're in a culture and despite the best efforts to expand opportunity and despite changing the processes, you're not getting better outcomes. It ultimately then falls on the leader to make some decisions to from time to time actually put the thumb on the scale. And do we as leaders need to do that with diversity? Absolutely. And you know why, Ted? Because we do it in every other area. When my teams come to an impasse on an important decision and they can't work it out, who has to push forward to make a decision? I do. And yes, it's informed by all these different inputs, but it is also informed by whatever my disposition or, quote unquote, if you wanted to call it bias, so that the hope is that you're getting good information and you have an informed bias. And that is no different as it pertains to pursuing better diversity.
0: So once you've been successful in bringing some of these candidates in, I'm curious if there are any unique or differentiated methods of training that are important in a variety of roles. It could be entry-level roles all the way up, because of the sensitivities and the biases that present themselves through someone's career?
1: You know what's interesting? (laughs) So there's no usually course that you're given. I can tell you, I know this is no secret to you that I'm an African-American. I can tell you in my entire career, no place that I've went to work has had this course that I've needed to take about how I can effectively navigate the culture as an African-American. But what I would say is this. It's actually a relevant question because in a sense it occurs. Now, let me tell you how it does occur. It's an informal thing. I think what you need to do is when you understand that all enterprises and companies have to continue the evolution in terms of diversity, have to work intentionally to be the most receptive place we can. What we talk about from a cultural sense, whether it's not just diversity, it's all kinds of elements. We have to make our cultures psychologically safe. Now, What's one of the easiest ways to make an individual feel psychologically safe? It's to make them feel like they're part of the group or the culture. So one of the best tools at our disposition is actually providing individuals with strong mentorship and strong ways to develop relationships, especially organically within the culture. So think about if I say it start with the second one, developing a relationships organically in a culture a lot of good firms have really good efforts around things like, you may call them affinity groups or resource counselors or the like, but the point is they're networks that people can become a part of where they can develop meaningful human relationships in the context of the culture. Now I feel like I'm more a part of the group and the environment now feels more psychologically safe to me. And there are some companies who invest no time and effort in that and they don't have strong employee groups. So I would say probably for a lot of those places on the margin, particularly if you're in a smaller represented ethnic group or gender group, it probably feels less safe. That just would be a natural outcome of that. And if you're in the majority, you don't even think about a lot of times that element of safety because it's just the norm for you is feeling safe, (laughs) right? The second thing, though, is the important role that mentorship and sponsorship plays. So what we have to do is get people, particularly the people that are, some of it is positional, but you know what? In any culture, even if you didn't know the titles, if you walked around an enterprise for about two weeks, you figure out who the high status people are. It would just be obvious. We signal it in all kinds of ways through human nature. And so you need people in positional leadership roles, senior leaders to actually consciously go out. And mentor and develop relationships with individuals because it does two things. One, it not only makes them feel psychologically safe and a part of the culture and that somebody and some bodies actually are interested in and concerned about their career well-being, but also there are teaching relationships. So that's the relationship through which the person learns to navigate the culture, which, by the way, we all have to learn. And that's the playbook that you don't get when you join. It's not in the ethics manual. It's not in the first day training manual. It's in the heads and the hearts of the people that work in the organization. And unless they choose to impart that knowledge to you, you will never have
0: it in any meaningful
1: or fulsome way.
0: Your group of Northern Trust has quite a diverse leadership team, and I'm curious effectively how you got there. So you've brought the people in through training, you've had these mentorship programs, but ultimately there's promotion and decisions as to who's running the organization. And I wonder if you could touch on how you were successful in getting to those positions today.
1: It has to start somewhere. So I would say it started in effect with say my predecessor. When I joined the asset management executive leadership team, uh, which was back in 2008, it was not a particularly diverse team. As a matter of fact, there was one gentleman who was an African-American who moved to a different part of the organization when I joined and I joined. So then when I joined, I was the only, not only was I the only African-American, I was the only person of color on the team. We had an executive team of 16 professionals and there were no women. But I want to point this out. But obviously there is a conscious decision of the gentleman who's leading the team to bring me on. So in his tenure, he not only brought people of color on the team as a starting point, but also we had our first women on the team. Now, for me, that's good because it began a path that I was able to build on and frankly accelerate. Like, so if you look at our team today, we've got a leadership team with 15 people on it. Nine of the members of our team are either women or ethnically diverse. So, you know, we have six people who are ethnically diverse. We have six women. Some of that overlaps. And frankly, for we're one of the 20 largest investment management firms in the globe. I don't know the demographics for every team. I just know what I can see anecdotally. I have to imagine, Ted, that we have to be among, if not the most diverse or one of the most diverse leadership teams out there. But what I would tell you is I just described to you something that happened over the course of years. It happened, I always tell people this, not on accident, on purpose. There's no magic that you can just hope it will be so. It was through the intentional expansion of opportunities. And I fundamentally know, not just believe, I know that we're better as a team because of it. And I will tell you, we have more work to do, but it's moving down through our organization. And part of what enables that, and it's why I feel strongly about if you're serious about diversity, starting at the top, a lot of times what happens is you have people of good intent. But They just may not have, say, for instance, connections to the diverse communities that we have. So if I think about my experience and I had a great working relationship and a personal relationship with my predecessor, once I came onto the team, if you think about things that we were looking to do in different areas, like if we were trying to recruit more diverse talent anywhere in the firm, I immediately expanded all those networks. Everything from the schools that I went to to being part of things like the Twigo Foundation and things like that, those now relationships and networks, in a sense, become his and the entire team's. I can contribute that. When we wanted to expand, I started out heading our capital markets efforts and running our broker-dealer business, and we were building out and expanding a minority brokerage program. So the difference for me is like, we have people with good intent who were going down that path and starting that program before I stepped into it. But myself and another one of the senior leaders there, we personally knew the leaders of many of those firms. So the ability to do that and partner with them and accelerate, it changes in a different way. I also think, to be frank to you, there is a sensitivity that you have when you have a certain experience. So when you're coming from a diverse background, when you're an ethnic minority, frankly, you spent your entire career thinking about this, navigating it or whatever. It is not an interesting idea to you, it's a practical reality. And so people take it for granted and that's why I say this respectfully, I just don't fundamentally believe it's enough for firms to say, we really wanna change our diversity so our starting point and our focus is going to be the establishment or expansion of our internship programs. Now let me be clear, I'm big on internship programs. I think we should multiply those exponentially and give lots of young people opportunities. But here's what will happen. If we do that, but we don't change the leadership of the boards or we don't evolve, especially the executive leadership of the company. If we don't have women and people of diverse or ethnic backgrounds and client facing roles, first of all, as a young person, I don't even see those as realistic possibilities for me to ascend to in my career. There's no example of it in front of me. And the reality is when key decisions are made, that are affecting diversity on any angle and you don't have any of those people at the decision table, it's hard, I think exceptionally difficult, to come to the very best answers.
0: As you look at the asset management industry as a whole, it's such a performance outcome-driven industry that you wonder sometimes, will people across the food chain of capital, do they really care? They care about performance. They care about returns. Maybe they are completely colorblind and gender blind. All they care about is their performance. How have you seen the benefits of engendering that diversity flow through to performance?
1: Well, first of all, it's interesting because you see it in a couple of different ways. The first thing I would say is with respect to performance, we have to perform on a lot of different levels. We have to have investment performance but we also serve clients. So we have to excel in terms of the client experience or the relationship. We have to perform in terms of how we work with other vendors and suppliers. We're often part of an ecosystem and we alone don't determine solely our success. We have to perform in terms of our ability to raise capital. We have to perform in terms of our representation of the firm in the marketplace, in the building, the brand through media. So I can, first of all, there are a lot of important elements of performance. Many of those elements involve solving oftentimes complex problems, and it's proven, and I can give you 20 different formidable branches of research that will show that diverse teams are particularly well adept at solving more complex problems. And it's kind of a simple reason. It actually makes sense intuitive. Like if you and I, like once you get a certain level of IQ, everything above that is just limited incremental benefit. So you got to have the requisite amount of intellectual capital. But after that, it's like, if you're trying to solve a complex problem, you want as many like tools or tool sets as you can get to put towards it. And if we all have the same tool set, it just doesn't expand what we do. And so one, that's one component of the performance. The other component of the performance is what I call the opportunity cost that we forget about. And so a lot of times we don't realize that we haven't been performing optimally because we've been blinded to an area or a gap in our performance. So because maybe at the starting point, all of the decision makers looked alike, we didn't realize, for instance, I'll make this up. We weren't doing well in the female demographic. Well, you might not pay attention to that if you have no senior women leaders. (laughs) And so what happens is you have a fallacy in your mind about how well you're actually performing. And so now you have the opportunity to not only enhance and improve your performance with that group, but expand your business opportunities with that group. So that's another element of performance. The other thing is in investments, this is the inconvenient truth. We talk about investment performance and it is important, but investment performance is mean reverting. Which means that even when you're a great investor, you're not going to have the top, in a sense, performing funds or products or however you measure it all the time no one can show me that. You can show good, consistent, high performance over time, and those distinguish themselves, but there's a mean reversion in performance. And that means the ability to maintain your business and keep clients over time is not solely a function of investment performance. As a matter of fact, it's proven in our business, once you have a certain level of performance, there are a lot of other things that become more important determinants of actually perpetuating your business and your business model. And so the performance that you have to deliver to shareholders, trust me, Ted, it depends on that.
0: As you talk to your peers that are running other asset managers, and particularly more recently, started maybe with ESG a year ago, and now Black Lives Matter has certainly picked up, what are you hearing of interest and action in the industry?
1: One of the things that I'm seeing is the dialogue and this is important, does feel different this time. What I would say is some of the unfortunate things that have been brought to bear in the pandemic in terms of some of the gross inequities in our society. It's not like they're new, right? They have, in many respects, been laying there in plain sight. And you've had some people that are, I would say, on the forefront of many of these causes. So how they think about social responsibility, articulating that. And we certainly have had adopters. That's something that's important as part of our business, but not necessarily moving at the scale or scope that some of us would think that it might naturally do. And then when you think about, again, for all of my useful life and for decades preceding me, and and honestly, for generations preceding me, we've had the issues of race and racial discrimination. And I think what I'm seeing now in the conversation is, number one, Ted an openness to have a conversation that people have been reluctant to have in a fulsome way for most of what I've seen in my professional career. So that's number one. Two, I'm also seeing a more comprehensive, in a sense, empirical or fact-based assessment of it. And, And the reason that's important is because it's easy when you're just talking about opinion sometimes to be dismissive of things, but I think people are really realizing, okay, now I can see in a tangible way, why this is important, not just to a segment of our community, but to our collective community. Why discrimination is not a problem just for people of color, but it actually retards the growth and economic vitality of our entire country and countries around the world. So I think that's an important advancement of the dialogue. And then the third thing that I'm seeing, which is powerful, but we need to see more of it, is... Sometimes what happens when we see problems, we spend a bunch of time describing the problem and analyzing it, and then the conversation fades away. The responsiveness I've seen in some people from initial dialogue to taking an action, I've never seen it in my career move that fast. And I think that's important is because a lot of ways that you solve problems is you have to iterate. You have to try something. And in the past, what's happened is we've been We've been satisfied with describing the problem, maybe analyzing it a lot, but not actually testing anything out. So those are the three things that I've seen on those issues that we need more of, but are very encouraging to me, Ted.
0: As we go through this period of the pandemic and hopefully come out of it before too long, a lot of businesses that go in with some level of strength come out stronger, composition of industries changes you wrote a terrific paper recently, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on with this particular issue of diversity and inclusion, how does the pandemic create actionable opportunities on the back end to make change happen? Well,
1: here's where it creates the huge opportunity. Beyond expanding the dialogue, beyond hopefully making real change in all of us personally in terms of unpacking our own biases or views or prejudices and growing and coming closer together together with our colleagues and the people in our communities in terms of really tangible and meaningful change in society, there are a couple of opportunities we have. Let me start with companies because a lot of what we talked about reflects businesses. The most important change that could come out of this and we need to see out of this is that businesses see the real opportunity to invest in, with, and alongside those in diverse communities. Charitable intent is a good thing, but charity will not remotely solve the issue we have. And the issue that we have is not that we have not been charitable enough. The issue that we have is we have not taken accountability for the inequities that our conscious and unconscious efforts have created that in many instances now require the charity that we give. And so the vast majority of people are not looking for some sort of handout. They're looking for the same thing that people do in any relationship with people with whom that they respect and they trust and they care about, involve themselves in. So we need to see that. And if we see that, all of the boats will rise and the tide will rise. That's what we need to see out of business. What we need to see a resurgence of in terms of people's engagement in society, I think a lot of people, if we're honest with ourselves, we either have withdrawn from civic engagement or never really been in it in a meaningful way to begin with. And so it's hard to really say, and most people, if they're honest, they would come to this, that, for instance, we can call our government, government for the people, by the people, because the people aren't engaging. But if we engage, we can actually begin to meaningfully impact the inequities that we have that, for instance, are baked into, say, for instance, our legal systems. And so I'll give an empirical example. We have to address the inequities in the criminal justice system. If I look at Blacks, we make up 13% or so, depending on when the last time you do the census of the population, 13 to 14%, that make up the same percentage of drug users but we make up 36 percent of arrest for drug conviction and 46 percent of drug convictions something about that is inequitable how can you have three and four times the number of arrests and convictions that you do of use and so it's not a figment of anyone's imagination when people talk about systemic inequities but they do not change if there is no change in the policies and the approaches and the laws and the policing And so it means something to me when people are upset, when they find out that a police officer with a no-knock warrant went to someone's house unannounced, and unfortunately the person gets shot and killed in their home. But here's the thing. First of all, law officers have a very difficult job. And before they serve that no-knock warrant, some judge signed off on it. And before that judge signed off on it, some legislators decided that that was a law that makes sense. And so it is not an unfortunate incident. It is a systemic problem. And because it's a systemic problem that affects all society, unless meaningful parts of society and members of society get involved in advocating and pushing for the solution, it does not get solved.
0: Is there a step, a single step that you encourage business leaders on that first point to take advantage of this opportunity to engage with these communities?
1: If I could wave a wand, I know exactly what the step I would be. Most established companies have usually some level of charitable intent usually expressed in specific ways. They often have groups that focus on strategic philanthropy and often are involved in making meaningful contributions from a charitable standpoint. I think that generically is a good thing. What I'd like to see companies step back and do and say, why don't we think about doing what we do well? We're about solving problems, creating opportunity, driving economic growth. I'd like to see some of those dollars specifically invested in creating opportunities for equity. And by that, I mean, invest those in businesses in the community that you do business with, as opposed to just only giving out, and I don't want to in any way denigrate the importance of being able to give to charitable causes, but why not also give grants? What I want to see companies doing is take a hard, honest look at what they're doing with the many suppliers that they work with and ask themselves, are they providing opportunities equitably for people to earn the right to do business with them? And I think the answer in many cases is no. And so that's the single most important thing businesses can do. You know what businesses can do? Do business well and do business equitably and ethically.
0: Shandran, I want to take a few minutes to turn to some closing questions. But before we do that, somewhere along the way, and I was preparing for this, I saw that you had not just worked on the values of the business at Northern Trust that you talked about, but you also have done a similar exercise within your family. And I'd love to hear about that process and the outcome of that process.
1: So the process was done many years ago. In my context, if you're married, your family is you and your wife. Now, we have two wonderful sons, but they were very small when we went through this. And and my practical reality is the commitment that I've made to my wife, whom I love and is better than I deserve, is truly one for life. And so while my sons, to the extent we have raised them well, will leave, <laughs> And we will enjoy a different relationship, we will still be here. But one of the things that we said very early on is we wanted to have an explicit articulation of a mission for our lives because we knew how demanding our work was and the things that we were doing. But our articulation was, look, we'll work hard, but our work plan, because we won't work in the professional settings we are until we move on to the next life, right? That has to fit in the context of our life plan. And we said, ultimately, the most important decisions that we make are value-based decisions. And so we went through a process of saying, let's just talk about what we value, talk about the ones that are common or shared among us, and let those be established for our family. And as our kids get older, discuss those and establish those and talk about how they guide our decisions. And so those values, we came up with seven family values. And gosh, we did this, I mean, probably 14, 15 years ago. And those values are faith, love, wisdom, accountability, leadership, competence, and generosity. And they are not throwaway terms. They really focus to drive how we think about the decisions that we make, what's important to us. For us, like what I try to encourage uh, the organizations that I'm a part of, whether it's the company I work or the boards I serve on, it's a reflection of what I believe and what I do. We, for ourselves, we give away a significant portion of the income that comes through our hands and through our homes. But that's it's always been that way for us. And it's been regardless of what our level of income has been because the value was always important.
0: Well, great. Let's turn to a couple of fun closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: So I'm like, for most people, as boring as you get. My hobbies are reading, writing, and running. And reading by far. So I'm reading all the time. I mean, on average, I probably read three books a month, notwithstanding all the periodicals and things like that I read.
0: If you started your career over today, money's no object, you couldn't be a leader in asset management, can't be an investor, what do you think you'd do? For
1: sure, I would be a teacher and writer, without question. I love teaching. In some capacity, I feel like it's something that I get to do in a lot of roles that I'm in, the ability to translate maybe complex matter into more understandable concepts and help people in their learning and development. I love that.
0: Do you have a daily habit that you've used for a long time that's been very beneficial to you?
1: Yes, and I would say the thing for me is my motor runs so hard, right? That I, I realize the habit that I have that's most important for me is the time that I spend in prayer meditation. Because I realize that those times left our own devices, how little time we can spend on reflection and how important that is for the whole self. So for me personally, that's very important. Uh, this one.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve? I'm really,
1: really intentional about a lot of things, and time is a big thing. So, my biggest pet peeve is people being late.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: The things that stick with me the most from them are always deduced into their teachings on humility and service. So, in a two part thing, I would tell you, my dad would always say, Everyone has something to teach you if you're willing to listen. And my mom, driven by how she worked, she worked in social work as far as her career. She went back to school, got her degree, and then went into social work. I told you they also founded a church. And so she would always say, whatever you do, you do it as un- unto the Lord. And that was her belief in her faith. But it was also, regardless of what your professed faith is, this belief in a transcendent purpose and that there was a service orientation that part of our goal was to pour our life out for others. So those are the two things from them. I can wake up in my sleep. My parents aren't gone. So I I can wake up in my sleep and literally hear them talking to me. But those things dominate a lot of lessons in life they taught me.
0: All right, Chandra, on last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: Oh my gosh, this one, I know it ties to something I said earlier. I had a mentor. He said, I got an important piece of advice for you. I'm gonna tell you, you're not gonna get it at first. And he says, and it's simple. He said, wherever you are, be there. And then I got what he said. I got it, but then I really got it. And it has taken me, even though he gave me that advice earlier on in my career, it took me later on in my career, in my life and with life circumstances to really appreciate the power of what he was telling me. Because we also don't appreciate that the metaphors we use for life, one of the popular ones is a race. And in some ways it is a race. But the problem is we think that that race is a sprint. And we think that sprint is lanes competing against others. And the metaphor of a race is probably better served a marathon. It's one that carries out over time and it's a full life journey. And now that I've run three marathons in my life, I understand you're not running against the other thousands of people. You're just running your own race. And if you take the time to just appreciate wherever you are being there, enjoying the grace of that moment or that day that you're not necessarily promising you might not get the next one. Understanding like whether it's with my family or my sons or my wife or my colleagues or my friends, right? Just the power of the experience of the journey, being able to reflect no matter how things came out versus your expectations to say that my effort and my intent and my experience was good. It took me a while in life to fully appreciate that. I wish I fully embraced it earlier. It's certainly important to me day by day.
0: Well, Shundron, thanks so much for taking the time and really for helping advance this dialogue.
1: Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. A manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by Ted or Capital Alligators.